0: If you made it to a beach last summer, on a day when the winds were calm and the sun was high, when the sky was cloudless and the gulls soared over hot sand, when small waves lapped your feet and cooled them, then it's likely you understand the power, the majesty, and the lure of a waterfront. Even today, not everyone has easy access to beaches. For some, distance is a barrier. For others, it's the expense if the beach itself has a fee for entry, or the hotels and homes nearby are beyond a visitor's budget. But before the mid-20th century, beaches nationwide, like so many other public spaces, were segregated, making them even harder for black vacationers to visit. That exclusion gave rise to invention. Historically, black beaches opened in various US cities, and until the desegregation of the late 1960s, those beaches found ways to thrive. They were semi-hidden wonderlands of Ferris wheels and nightclubs, homes to some of the most star-studded rhythm and blues concerts you can imagine, and the sights of elegant two-story homes overlooking soothing waves. In Maryland, the legacies of such waterfronts are managed by those who remember them in their heyday, or maintained by the families of the beach's original owners. This summer, we ventured away from all the sizzling fun in the city and set out for the serenity of those shorelines. We found the sites of some of the most storied Maryland beaches that were founded and run by African Americans in the early to mid-20th century. We saw both what happens when a beachfront oasis is lost and when another is protected from the ravages of time. And we learned in the process that, for some of Maryland's African American entrepreneurs, land wealth is a goalpost that moves as easily as the tide. I'm Stacia Brown, and this is The Rise of Charm City, Episode 18, Beach Your Bottom Dollar. For many African Americans in post-slavery Maryland, land acquisition and home ownership in the state presented considerable challenges, except on that sandy, not always easily farmable property adjacent to large bodies of water, beaches.
1: These were kind of places where, you know, quite literally off the beaten path, and therefore, um, African Americans who are seeking to become independent landowners stood a relatively better chance of acquiring this type of property than others. Now, over the course of the 20th century, that changes quite dramatically. These places go from being sort of remote and undesirable to becoming very desirable and highly coveted.
0: This is Dr. Andrew Carl.
1: I'm an associate professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Virginia, and I'm the author of the book, The Land Was Ours, How Black Beaches Became White Wealth in the Coastal South.
0: We spoke with Dr. Carl by phone this summer while he was vacationing at, where else, a beach. He walked us through some of the early history of two popular historically black beaches in Maryland, Cars and Sparrows, and he connected us with several people with personal connections to the beaches.
2: My name is Janice Hayes-Williams, and I am a local historian and tour guide for our legacy tours in the city of Annapolis. And the beach property was owned by a former slave by the name of Frederick Carr. He worked at the United States Naval Academy, and, uh, you know, he saved his money, and he bought property. And so this became a place, if you were traveling, there's lodging, the family would cook, you know, you could Fish, you could sit on the beach.
0: We visited Miss Janice Hayes Williams in Annapolis, where she serves as a local historian and guide for a black history tourism company, Our Legacy Tours.
2: The interesting thing about here in Maryland is that when you think about the establishment of our, our communities, our counties, whites didn't want the beach. So the only people who owned beachfront property were black people. So this particular man decided to, okay, let's do a little more, and his wife did and his children did. In
0: 1902, the formerly enslaved Frederick Carr and his wife Mary Wells Carr purchased 180 acres of farmland on the Annapolis Neck Peninsula. Like Miss Hayes Williams mentioned, they used it as much to entertain as they did to farm, hosting picnics and renting to boarders. It took them nearly 20 years to turn those smaller social enterprises into a beach— that happened in 1926, two years before Frederick Carr passed away. His two daughters inherited the land.
1: The daughter, whose last name was Sparrow, claimed a portion of the waterfront property. Another daughter, who was named Carr, was able to acquire the other portion. And then they sort of established these separate but complementary enterprises. In fact, I mean, Carr's and Sparrow's Beach were sort of separate beaches, similar but distinct entities. I mean, Carr's Beach was the, much more of the... Um, the place would host music shows. They had the large stage for Big acts. Um, they also had the Midway over there. Sparrows Beach was a little, a little more sedate, perhaps. Um, but it, it, the distinctions between the two were very blurred. In fact, I mean, most people kind of refer to them interchangeably.
2: Growing up in Annapolis, there's nobody who didn't know about cars and sparrows. And if you're black, uh, almost everybody in Annapolis is related. But my legacy... To the Carr's Beach, Sparrows Beach story is that my mom used to work for Elizabeth Carr back in the 1930s. My mom, she's gone now. She was born in 1923 and, and she's down there waiting tables in the 30s. But she was 5'5 five five and 98 pounds. If anybody wanted to win a jitterbug contest it was with her. So waiting tables, it's time for the Jitterbug contest. So my mom sneaks off and leaves her sister with all the tables. The story was told to me by both of them, and my aunt laughed. She said, well, it was bad enough I had to wait her tables, but she was so stupid that she would put some of her tips in her socks. So after the Jitterbug contest was over, all her tips were gone because they were all over the dance floor. So they always laughed about that.
0: For those in the know, Cars and Sparrows beaches were already hotspots, but the enterprises crew under the daughter's management. And by the nineteen fifties, the popular vacation getaways attracted the attention of a prominent Baltimorean, someone whose name is synonymous with local black entrepreneurship.
1: You know, Willie Adams was someone who um, helped kind of bankroll the area's expansion, and this and this was quite common for someone such as him. You know, it's sort of person who made a fortune operating, you know, the numbers game in Baltimore, which was an informal illicit economy. It was typical for someone to look for ways to invest some of that money in legitimate enterprises.
2: He said, let me make this investment of $150,000. Imagine what that was around 1940. And here come the slot machines. You have to remember Anne Arundel County is the first county in the state of Maryland to legalize gambling. 1943 so it was on like popcorn if you don't mind my expression.
0: The changes Mr. Adams brought to Cars Beach were significant.
1: Going from a small seasonal enterprise that had some accommodations had um, games and attractions and other things that would draw in customers and other events to becoming this large regional destination with a a large massive midway lots of games rides ferris wheel and also as well having these sort of contracts with the local black radio station in annapolis that broadcast shows you know across the region
3: hey, how would you like to see all the top recording stars this summer well you can at Cards beach in annapolis this season will be jam-packed with the greatest stars in the musical field just listen to a few of the greats that will be hitting your way may the 29th is tanning Girald. may the 30th james June the 12th, Wilson Pickett, June the 19th,
2: the time great... The WANN radio that was founded by a gentleman by the name of Morris Blum um, actually extended as far up as Delaware or more so people could hear this music, and he had this famous DJ, and his name was Hoppy Adams. His name was Charles A. Adams, and they called him Hoppy Adams, and you could hear him, you know... Tonight, 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 you know, what was going on in Cars Beach. So everybody heard it.
3: You don't want to miss any of these great,
2: great shows. So they plan now to be president of Cars Beach in Annapolis, Maryland, the
3: entertainment capital of the East Coast. Remember now.
2: And um, I don't want people to think that whites did not come to that beach because they did. Cars Beach was open to everyone. And I think a lot of whites were surprised because all they said, is your money green like everybody else? And so they would go in and dance and see all the different acts.
4: Every Saturday, every Sunday, that's where I went and a whole lot of folks. Because you couldn't get a person like today, James Brown, people like that, for $5 to $6, $7, you know. And you had everybody. I'm talking about Stevie Wonder, you know, Temptation, James Brown, or or, or Ree Franklin. All the people I can tell you, you know, it's, they're full, it was full of national groups. And you can pay that little bit of money going there.
0: Larry Griffin grew up so close to Cars Beach that it was practically in his backyard.
4: I lived across the creek, they call it. And we could swim from there and go over the other side. reason why, we was bad boys. We stole in the beach. When I got to, to go over, over what we call the creek and went through, uh, we used to go and steal under the, the wharf, and that's where, when you go through that, you go to the big provision, and which is Cars Beach. Come with me
3: See how much fun it
0: can be me You heard that right. Mr. Griffin and his young friends used to steal into the beach by swimming under the wharf and into the beach proper. Everybody do it! When he was in his early teens, Larry's cousin, DJ Hoppy Adams, gave him a pretty fantastic summer job.
4: To go back and forth in the dress room, make sure they have towels, make sure you do this, make you do that, um, for the for the national groups. And we did that for a long, for a long time. I did. So... And I can also go and see the, 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 star, the show.
0: We asked if there was any celebrity encounter that was particularly memorable.
4: Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, Tina Turner. Tina Turner. I walked her up to the step. Um, she was going up the step, and she dropped a purse, a little small purse, and it fell out. I gave it to the guy to give to her and she came back over gave me a kiss on the side and she gave me a dollar. The only one <laughs> gave me a dollar, gave me any kind of money. Um, I played down there, I played, I opened up with uh, George Clinton, George Clinton and I played uh, opened up with him and uh, that's probably the only two times that I have a good time to get on the stage and do that kind of stuff. Yeah.
0: We talked to another veteran of the famous Cars Beach concert stage.
3: My name is Winfield Parker, uh Rujek Records. Oh, it was it was it was great. Um, people used to come there in, in cars, you know, some of them would hide in the trunks of the cars and because they were charging per car load. See <laughs> but people would get out the trunks when they got up to the platform.
0: Mr. Parker credits some of the earliest breaks of his career to his performances at Cars Beach.
3: I remember being on the show with um, the Impressions, and Curtis and all of them drove up. Each one of them had a Corvette. And I'm saying to myself, boy, well, one day I'm going to drive up in a Corvette or Cadillac, something, you know. But it was just so different. Everybody used to love Cars Beach. Cars Beach was distinct on its own. It was, uh, altogether different than everything else, you know. You felt kind of free there. It wasn't a lot of fights or things like that, you know. I mean, people just seemed like they came to have a good time.
0: Of course, in the event that anything got out of hand, disputes between out-of-towners and the like, the beach was prepared to handle it.
1: The first um, deputized sheriff in Anne Arundel County history was a man by the name of George Phelps, who was specifically... um, hired by the sheriff's department to work Cars Beach in the summer. Um and then was also given the right to hire other young African American men to also work under him. So they had a whole um police force that was working kind of as security um, for Cars Beach in part at the behest of many of the white homeowners in the area who um were growing concerned about this the large volumes of crowds and the family as well who wanted to ensure that their um enterprise would, you know, remain viable and not subject to some law enforcement crackdowns. So George Phelps, you know, he became the sort of head of security for Cars Beach and had a whole team of um, African-American men, many of whom couldn't break into law enforcement on their own because of discrimination, got jobs working um, at Cars Beach, and then many of whom later on went on to become police officers or um, worked in the sheriff's office at Anne Arundel County um, in the 60s and 70s.
0: Despite everything Cars and Sparrows Beaches brought to Marylanders and the scores of -of out-of-towners who trek there every summer, the popularity of the beaches began to wane in the late 1960s and early 70s. Between desegregation and the rise of the large corporate theme park, then open to all visitors regardless of race, black vacationers began venturing farther from home and exploring their newer options. Cars and Sparrows Beaches had also been handed down again, and the family's inheritance ultimately proved too difficult to maintain.
2: It was a big loss to everybody because we we have to remember this beach provided economic development for everybody. So if you were a teenager, you were parking cars and making uh, money. My mother, in the late 30s, she was a college student. And that's where you work. So when you came into the 40s, what you're going to see working down there are actually black teachers free during the summer. And this is how they make extra money. Cars Beach belonged to everybody.
4: I loved it. I miss it. You know, I mean, it took a lot from us that's from Annapolis and D.C. and any other place, but living right there. Right there right there to go to these places and you shake your hand at people and all that. You know, Ali, he came down. You know, he was class as clay, that's what they call him first. You know, that's guy. But they had uh force, force wheels. They had that, they had roller coasters. They had the whole thing down there. It was it was just like going to Disney World. But you doing you all you're doing is listening to music and, and a lot of dancing. I danced a lot. So I wish I could to uh, have some money or something to bring it back. But right now, I don't know if y'all been down there. It's not like that. You need, yeah. It's a spot down there. And it's still the land is still there, but they cut it up and put uh, money, money places. You know. So we had a lot of things. So I, I, I tell you, today, I mean, I it, it hurts me because I love to go down there.
0: Dr. Andrew Carl says the implications of what happened to Cars and Sparrows Beach go far beyond fond memories and fun nostalgia.
1: The parking lot is now part of a gated community. Most of the people who live in the place that was formerly Cars Beach are are white um, and fairly affluent. These are very expensive properties. This place is worth now millions and millions of dollars, and really the family and the people who, who had spent so much time and so much you know had put so much effort into making it what it was, never got a chance to see much of that wealth that it now generates. The communities are not only pushed aside, but they don't really get a chance to realize the the, the value of their land. It's not just the sort of memories and the culture and community that was lost, but it was also quite literally wealth. The land that african-americans owned in along coastal areas and waterways was as today some of the most valuable property in america developers oftentimes working in coordination with local officials um quite literally sort of you know stole land right out from under the feet of black communities and that was a tragic loss that was um that not only robbed communities of spaces but also really um you know denied families the wealth that they had built over generations and, and the story of Carrs beach is one of those very stories
0: You've been listening to the Rise of Charm City. After talking to so many people about the legacies of Cars and Sparrows Beaches, we drove for a few miles to a place we'd heard a lot about, both from the Cars and Sparrows crowd and from Dr. Andrew Carl.
1: Highland Beach was incorporated as a municipality, so it had its own um, form of government. It was incorporated back in the 1920s by families who lived there specifically as a way to sort of defend themselves against attempts to um, develop and displace them. So they, you know, they had a keen sense of their own vulnerabilities, but also were very um, vigilant and protecting their identity. So one of the things that they did, and this was in the 1980s was have the, the home that was built for Frederick Douglass, Twin Oaks, designated as a national landmark, which again, sort of further helped to stamp the identity of that place as being a historically significant African-American beach resort community um, in ways that some of the other historically Black beach resorts on, along the Chesapeake were not able to.
0: Ms. Hayes-Williams explained that many of the African-American beaches in Annapolis were founded for different purposes. Cars and sparrows, for instance, were entirely for entertainment and recreation. The origins of Highland Beach were different.
2: Highland Beach was established out of being turned away from white beaches. Here's Frederick Douglass, you know, his sons are hanging around with Murray Church Terrell and her family, and they decide to come to Annapolis to go to the beach resort. Well, when they got there, they were turned away. When Douglass' son told him about it, he said, I want you to go back to Annapolis and buy a piece of property on the water as close as possible to the beach that wouldn't let you come in.
5: My name is Raymond Langston. I'm a longtime resident of the town of Highland Beach. I'm the former mayor. I served eight years as the mayor of the town and I'm currently a city commissioner. We're sitting in uh, Frederick Douglass' summer home and he called it Twin Oaks. As you see, there's a Twin Oak tree right there. And it used to be two of those, one here and one there.
0: I won't pretend that it isn't surreal to sit in the parlor of a home once designed by Frederick Douglass. The dwelling boasts a breathtaking view of sand and surf, and the undisturbed quiet of the small, exclusive neighborhood around it belies a hard-earned serenity, the kind one deserves at the end of a life like Douglass's.
5: The house is looking directly across the bay at the eastern shore. There's a balcony here that Frederick Douglass designed himself because he said in his autobiography that someday I'm going to sit here as a retired man and as a free man and look across the bay where I was born a slave. And he died in 1895, the year that this house was finished. He did get to come design it, pay for it, build it, and help to supervise but he didn't get a chance to live here very long.
0: Twin Oaks is now a museum and cultural center owned by the town of Highland Beach. You can visit by appointment only to hear all about the founding history of the beach and the town.
5: Highland Beach uh, was founded in 1893 by Charles Douglas, Frederick Douglas's oldest son. Uh, Charles and his wife, Laura, visited the nearby community At the height of segregation. They were escorted off of the property which is just across Black Walnut Creek here and they met a black farmer by the name of Daniel Bashiers, and he owned all of this land. It was his farmland. He recognized the name Douglas and they discussed buying selling some of the property to Charles Douglas. So in 1893 Highland Beach became the first African-American summer resort In the United States Which is pretty significant when you think about the fact That it was just less than 30 years after slavery Mary Church Terrell, my grandmother Bought the property next door To this house, which is Frederick Douglass's house Frederick Douglass and my grandmother were good friends And he suggested that she buy the property next to him She, in turn, talked to Paul Lawrence Dunbar, the poet Who wrote the poem, Ships Passing in the Night To buy the property on the other side of us Uh, After that, um, in 1922, uh, Mary Church Terrell led a delegation to lobby the state uh, here in Annapolis to make Highland Beach an incorporated town. So Highland Beach in 1922 became the first African-American incorporated town in the state of Maryland. And we still are fully incorporated today.
0: That early incorporation was key.
5: Well, you know, these were educated people, and they knew that the only way they could protect themselves, their families, and the future was to be in charge of their own destiny. And if you look at Washington, D.C. today, they still don't have home rule, and we have home rule. When you look at all the other African-American beaches up and down the East Coast, they're all gone. And this is the only one that's left. And it's reasonably, the reason it's left is because we are not a summer resort anymore, but an incorporated residential town. That's what really saved us, really.
0: In the founding days of Highland Beach, black celebrity sightings were not uncommon.
5: During the summer months, it was, as I say, the height of segregation. So people like Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Booker T. Washington, Paul Robeson, Conti Culling, I could go down the list of prominent, educated African-Americans who would come here and spend their summer, weeks here in the summertime. The first woman mayor in the state of Maryland was here at Highland Beach. Um, so we set the record and for a lot of firsts for the state. And Fannie Douglas was the first postmistress here. And I don't think people knew that she was not only the first here in Highland, she was the first woman postmistress and the first African-American in the state of Maryland. But I go back and say that all of it is a result of us, our ancestors being smart enough to take control of their own destiny.
0: Today, somewhat miraculously, Highland Beach still serves its original purposes for many of the descendants of its original founders.
5: If you live here and own property, you're part owner of that beach. When I got married, uh, on my very first date, I brought my wife here. And uh, we've been married 64 years now. So.
0: <laughs> As you may have guessed, tradition is important to the residents of Highland Beach.
5: Every other year, we have a friends, family, and friends reunion. Um, for the past 30 years maybe and we put that entire beach under a tent the size of a football field and we have a sit down catered meal dance live music for about 550 to 600 people and we do that every other year this coming year will be our big one because Highland Beach in 2018 will be 125 years old and Frederick Douglass will celebrate his 200th birthday. So that's gonna be, next year will be a very special year for us. Yeah, and it's a tradition to have that. We also have the 4th of July parade, picnic on the beach. Um, We have an event called the Watermelon Regatta, which is a sailboat races. we have quite a few boat owners and they have a race, and then we have a picnic after the race. The winner gets a watermelon.
0: <laughs> As we were leaving Twin Oaks, we stepped out onto the porch where Mr. Langston showed us more of the historic points of reference that surround him each day.
5: If you look right through there, you see that red building right through there? today, that is the Chesapeake Bay Foundation headquarters. When Highland Beach was discovered, that was the Bay Ridge Resort, where Charles and Laura visited. used to be a bridge across this creek, and they were escorted from that resort. In 1914, that resort, the hotel, burned down, and my grandmother and grandfather bought six horse-drawn wagon loads of salvageable lumber and my house is built entirely out of that lumber.
0: Nationwide, historically black beaches have faced the threat of complete extinction. That Maryland still boasts one or two is something for the state to be quite proud of and for the places that once thrived but now only exist in closely held memory, many lessons can still be found. Land once lost is difficult to reclaim again. Its value must never be underestimated. Protecting it can only be done through generational unity and understanding of its borders and the ability to profit from its potential. We return to the city acutely aware of what could have been and what, quietly, still is. This, perhaps, is the greatest buried treasure a beach vacation can unearth. This episode was produced by Allie Post and Stacia Brown. It is brought to you with financial support from the Robert W. Deutsch Foundation and listeners like you. Production assistance was provided by Marcia Jews. Our theme music was produced by Mark Gunnery. Visit RiseOfCharmCity.com to find out more about Cars, Sparrows, and Highland Beaches. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Rise of Charm City. Longtime listeners know that our show was created in partnership with the Baltimore-based public radio station, WEAA 88.9. We've greatly enjoyed our station partnership, but new episodes of our show will be produced independently. We wish WEAA the best as it launches a new lineup of programming this fall. As always, you can find all episodes of The Rise of Charm City on SoundCloud, iTunes, and other podcast providers.